Chapter Eight of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Six by Thomas Darcy McGee. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Eight: The Age and Rule of Gerald, Eighth Earl of Kildare. The tide begins to turn for the English interest. The Yorkist pretenders, Simnel and Warbeck. Poyning's Parliament. Battles of Nocto and Monabrere. Perhaps no preface could better introduce the reader to the singular events which marked the times of Gerald, eighth Earl of Kildare, than a brief account of one of his principal partisans, Sir James Keating, prior of the Knights of St. John. The family of Keating, of Norman-Irish origin, were most numerous in the fifteenth century in Kildare, from which they afterwards spread into Tipperary and Limerick. Sir James Keating, a mere Irishman, became prior of Kilmainham about the year 1461, at which time Sir Robert Dowdle, deputy to the Lord Treasurer, complained in Parliament, that being on a pilgrimage to one of the shrines in the Pale, he was assaulted near Clonniff by the prior with a drawn sword, and thereby put in danger of his life. It was accordingly decreed that Keating should pay to the king a hundred pounds fine, and to Sir Robert a hundred marks, but from certain technical errors in the proceedings he successfully evaded both these penalties. When in the year 1478 the Lord Grey of Codner was sent over to supersede Kildare, he took the decided step of refusing to surrender to that nobleman the castle of Dublin, of which he was constable. Being threatened with an assault, he broke down the bridge and prepared his defence, while his mend, the Earl of Kildare, called a Parliament at Nas, in opposition to Lord Grey's assembly at Dublin. In 1480, after two years of rival parties and viceroys, Lord Grey was fain to resign his office, and Kildare was regularly appointed deputy to Richard, Duke of Gloucester, afterwards Richard III. Two years later, Keating was deprived of his rank by Peter d'Aubisson, Grand Master of Rhodes, who appointed Sir Marmaduke Lumley, an English knight, in his stead. Sir Marmaduke landed soon after at Clontarf, where he was taken prisoner by Keating, and kept in close confinement until he had surrendered all the instruments of his election and confirmation. He was then enlarged, and appointed to the commandery of Kilsoran, near Castle Bellingham, in Louth. In the year 1488, Keating was one of those who took an active part in favour of the pretender, Lambert Simnel, and although his pardon had been sternly refused by Henry the Seventh, he retained possession of the hospital until 1491, when he was ejected by force, and ended his turbulent life, as we are told, in the most abject poverty and disgrace. All whom he had appointed to office were removed. An act of Parliament was passed, prohibiting the reception of any mere Irishman into the order for the future, and enacting that whoever was recognized as prior by the Grand Master should be of English birth, and one having such a connection with the order, thereas might strengthen the force and interest of the kings of England in Ireland. The fact most indicative of the spirit of the times is, that a man of prior Keating's disposition could, for thirty years, have played such a daring part as we have described in the city of Dublin. During the greater part of that period he held the office of constable of the castle and prior of Kilmainham, in defiance of English deputies and English kings, than which no farther evidence may be adduced to show how completely the English interest was extinguished, even within the walls of Dublin, during the reign of the last of the Plantagenet princes, and the first years of Henry the Seventh. In 1485, Henry, Earl of Richmond, grandson of Queen Catherine and Noonat Tudor, returned from his fourteen years' exile in France, and by the victory of Bosworth, took possession of the throne. 
the Earl of Kildare, undisputed deputy during the last years of Edward IV, had been continued by Richard, and was not removed by Henry VII. Though a staunch Yorkist, he showed no outward opposition to the change of dynasty, for which he found a graceful apology soon afterwards. Being at Mass, in Christ Church Cathedral, on the 2nd of February, 1486, he received intelligence of Henry's marriage with Elizabeth of York, which he at once communicated to the Archbishop of Dublin, and ordered an additional Mass for the King and Queen. Yet from the hour of that union of the houses of York and Lancaster, it needed no extraordinary wisdom to foresee that the exemption of the Anglo-Irish nobles from the supremacy of their nominal king must come to an end, and the freedom of the old Irish from any formidable external danger must also close. The union of the Roses, so full of promise of peace for England, was to form the date of a new era in her relations with Ireland. The tide of English power was at that hour at its lowest ebb. It had left far in the interior the landmarks of its first irresistible rush. It might be said, without exaggeration, that Gaelic children now gathered shells and pebbles where that tide once rolled, charged with all its thunders, it was now about to turn. The first murmuring menace of new encroachments began to be heard under Henry the Seventh. As we listen, they grow louder on the ear. The waves advance with a steady, deliberate march. Unlike the first impetuous onslaught of the Normans, they advance and do not recede, till they recover all the ground they had abandoned. The era which we dated from the Red Earl's death, in 1333, has exhausted its resources of aggression and assimilation. A new era opens with the reign of Henry the Seventh, or more distinctly still, with that of his successor, Henry the Eighth. We must close our account of the old era, before entering upon the new. The contest between the Earl of Kildare and Lord Grey for the government, 1478-1480, to marks the lowest ebb of the English power. We have already related how Prior Keating shut the castle gates on the English deputy, and threatened to fire on his guard if he attempted to force them. Lord Portalester also, the Chancellor, and father-in-law to Kildare, joined that Earl in his Parliament at Nas with the Great Seal. Lord Grey, in his Dublin Assembly, declared the Great Seal cancelled, and ordered a new one to be struck, but after a two years' contest he was obliged to succumb to the greater influence of the Geraldines. Kildare was regularly acknowledged Lord Deputy, under the King's Privy Seal. It was ordained that thereafter there should be but one Parliament convoked during the year, that but one subsidy should be demanded annually, the sum not to exceed a thousand marks. Certain acts of both parliaments, Grey's and Kildare's, were by compromise confirmed. Of these were two which do not seem to collate very well with each other, one prohibiting the inhabitants of the Pale from holding any intercourse whatsoever with the mere Irish, the other extending to Con O'Neill, Prince of Tyrone, and brother-in-law of Kildare, the rights of a naturalized subject within the Pale. The former was probably Lord Grey's, the latter was Lord Kildare's legislation. Although Henry the Seventh had neither disturbed the Earl in his governments, nor his brother, Lord Thomas, as Chancellor, it was not to be expected that he could place entire confidence in the leading Yorkist family among the Anglo-Irish. The restoration of the Ormond estates, in favour of Thomas, the Seventh Earl, was both politic and just, and could hardly be objectionable to Kildare, who had just married one of his daughters to Pierce Butler, nephew and heir to Thomas. The want of confidence between the new king and his deputy was first exhibited in 1486, when the earl, being summoned to attend on his majesty, called a parliament at Trim, which voted him an address, 
representing that in the affairs about to be discussed his presence was absolutely necessary. Henry affected to accept the excuse as valid, but every arrival of court news contained some fresh indication of his deep-seated mistrust of the Lord Deputy, who, however, he dared not yet dismiss. The only surviving Yorkists who could put forward pretensions to the throne were the Earl of Lincoln, Richard's declared heir, and the young Earl of Warwick, son of that Duke of Clarence who was born in Dublin Castle in 1449. Lincoln, with Lord Lovell and others of his friends, was in exile at the court of the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy, sister to Edward IV, and the son of Clarence, a lad of fifteen years of age, was a prisoner in the Tower. In the year 1486 a report spread of the escape of this prince, and soon afterwards Richard Simon, a priest of Oxford, landed in Dublin with a youth of the same age, of prepossessing appearance and address, who could relate with the minutest detail the incidents of his previous imprisonment. He was at once recognized as the son of Clarence by the Earl of Kildare and his party, and preparations were made for his coronation by the title of Edward the Sixth. Henry, alarmed, produced from the tower the genuine Warwick, whom he publicly paraded through London, in order to prove that the pretender in Dublin was an impostor. The Duchess of Burgundy, however, fitted out a fleet, containing two thousand veteran troops, under the command of Martin Swart, who, sailing up the channel, reached Dublin without interruption. With this fleet came the Earl of Lincoln, Lord Lovell, and the other English refugees, who all recognized the protégé of Father Simon as the true prince. Octavius, the Italian Archbishop of Armagh, then residing at Dublin, the Bishop of Clogger, the Butlers, and the Baron of Howth, were incredulous or hostile. The great majority of the Anglo-Irish lords, spiritual and temporal, favoured his cause, and he was accordingly crowned in Christ Church Cathedral, with a diadem taken from an image of Our Lady, on the 24th of May, 1487. The deputy, chancellor, and treasurer were present. The sermon was preached by Payne, Bishop of Meath. A parliament was next convoked in his name, in which the butlers and citizens of Waterford were proscribed as traitors. A herald from the latter city, who had spoken over boldly, was hanged by the Dubliners as a proof of their loyalty. The council ordered a force to be equipped for the service of his new majesty in England, and Lord Thomas Fitzgerald resigned the chancellorship to take the command. This expedition, the last which invaded England from the side of Ireland, sailed from Dublin about the 1st of June, and landed on the Lancashire shore, at the pile of Foudray, marched to Ulverstone, where they were joined by Sir Thomas Broughton and other devoted Yorkists. From Ulverstone the whole force, about eight thousand strong, marched into Yorkshire, and from Yorkshire southwards into Nottingham. Henry, who had been engaged in making a progress through the southern counties, hastened to meet him, and both armies met at Stoke-upon-Trent, near Newark, on the sixteenth day of June, 1487. The battle was contested with utmost obstinacy, but the English prevailed. The Earl of Lincoln, the Lords Thomas and Maurice Fitzgerald, Plunkett, son of Lord Killeen, Martin Swart, and Sir Thomas Broughton were slain. Lord Lovell escaped, but was never heard of afterwards. The pretended Edward the Sixth was captured, and spared by Henry only to be made a scullion in his kitchen. Father Simon was cast into prison, where he died, after having confessed that his protégé was Lambert Simnel, the son of a joiner at Oxford. Nothing shows the strength of the Kildare party, and the weakness of the English interest, more than that the deputy and his partisans were still continued in office. They dispatched a joint letter to the king, deprecating his anger, which he was prudent enough to conceal. 
he sent over the following spring Sir Richard Edgecombe, comptroller of his household, accompanied by a guard of five hundred men. Sir Richard first touched at Kinsale, where he received the homage of the Lords Barry and de Courcy. He then sailed to Waterford, where he delivered to the mayor royal letters confirming the city in its privileges, and authorizing its merchants to seize and distress those of Dublin, unless they made their submission. After leaving Waterford, he landed at Malahide, passing by Dublin, to which he proceeded by land, accompanied with his guard. The Earl of Kildare was absent on a pilgrimage, from which he did not return for several days. His first interviews with Edgecombe were cold and formal, but finally, on the 21st of July, after eight or ten days' disputation, the Earl and the other lords of his party did homage to King Henry, in the great chamber of his town-house in Thomas Court, and thence proceeding to the chapel, took the oath of allegiance on the consecrated host. With this submission Henry was fain to be content. Kildare, Portalester, and Plunkett were continued in office. The only one to whom the king's pardon was persistently refused was Sir James Keating, prior of Kilmainham. In the subsequent attempts of Perkin Warbeck, 1492-1499, in the character of Richard, Duke of York, one of the princes murdered in the tower by Richard III, the Anglo-Irish took a less active part. Warbeck landed at Cork from Lisbon, and dispatched letters to the earls of Kildare and Desmond, to which they returned civil but evasive replies. At Cork he received an invitation from the King of France to visit that country, where he remained till the conclusion of peace between France and England. He then retired to Burgundy, where he was cordially received by the Duchess, after an unsuccessful descent on the coast of Kent. He took a refuge in Scotland, where he married a lady closely allied to the crown. In 1497 he again tried his fortune in the south of Ireland, was joined by Maurice, tenth Earl of Desmond, the Lord Barry, and the citizens of Cork. Having laid siege to Waterford, he was compelled to retire with loss, and Desmond, having made his peace with Henry, Warbeck was forced again to fly into Scotland. In 1497 and eight he made new attempts to excite the insurrection in his favour in the north of England and in Cornwall. He was finally taken and put to death on the 16th of November, 1499. With him suffered his first and most faithful adherent, John Waters, who had been mayor of Cork at his first landing from Lisbon, in 1492, and who was ignorantly or designedly called by Henry's partisan a water. History has not yet positively established the fraudulency of this pretender. A late, eminently cautious writer, with all the evidences which modern research has accumulated, speaks of him as one of the most mysterious persons in English history, and in mystery we must leave him. We have somewhat anticipated events, in other quarters, in order to dispose of both the Yorkist pretenders at the same time. The situation of the Earls of Kildare in this and the next reign, though full of grandeur, was also full of peril. Within the pale they had one part to play, without the pale another. Within the pale they held one language, without it another. At Dublin they were English earls, beyond the Boyne or the Barrow, they were Irish chiefs. They had to tread their cautious, and not always consistent way, through the endless complications which must arise between two nations occupying the same soil, with conflicting allegiance, language, laws, customs, and interests. While we frequently feel indignant at the tone they take towards the Irish enemy in their dispatches to London, the pretended enemies being at that very time their confidants and allies, on further reflection we feel disposed to make some allowance on the score of circumstance and necessity, 
for a duplicity which, in the end, brought about, as duplicity in public affairs ever does, its own punishment. In Ulster, as well as in Leinster, the ascendancy of the Earl of Kildare over the native population was widespread and long-sustained. Con O'Neill, Lord of Tyrone, from 1483 to 1491, and Turlo, Con and Art, his sons and successors, from 1498 to 1548, maintained the most intimate relations with this earl and his successors. To the former he was brother-in-law, and to the latter, of course, uncle. To all he seems to have been strongly attached. Hugh Roe O'Donnell, Lord of Tyrconnell, 1450 to 1505, and his son and successor, Hugh Dew O'Donnell, 1505 to 1530, were also closely connected with Kildare, both by friendship and intermarriage. In 1491, O'Neill and O'Donnell mutually submitted their disputes to his decision at his castle of Maynooth, and though he found it impossible to reconcile them at the moment, we find both of these houses cordially united with him afterwards. In 1498 he took Dungannon and Omagh, with great guns, from the insurgents against the authority of his grandson, Turlough O'Neill, and restored them to Turlough. The next year he visited O'Donnell, and brought his son Henry to be fostered among the kindly Irish of Tyrconnell. In the year 1500 he also placed the castle of Kinnard in the custody of Turlogh O'Neill. In Leinster the Geraldine interest was still more entirely bound up with that of the native population. His son, Sir Oliver of Killay, married an O'Connor of Offaly. The daughter of another son, Sir James of Lexip, sometimes called the Knight of the Valley, became the wife of the chief of Imale. The Earl of Ormond and Ulick Burke of Clanricard were also sons-in-laws of the Eighth Earl, but in both these cases the old family feuds survived in despite of the new family alliances. In the fourth year after his accession, Henry the Seventh, proceeding by slow degrees to undermine Kildare's enormous power, summoned the chief Anglo-Irish nobles to his court at Greenwich, where he reproached them with their support of Simnel, who, to their extreme confusion, he caused to wait on them as butler at dinner. A year or two afterwards he removed Lord Portalester from the treasurership, which he conferred on Sir James Butler, the bastard of Ormond. Plunkett, the chief justice, was promoted to the chancellorship, and Kildare himself was removed to make way for Fitzsimons, Archbishop of Dublin. This, however, was but a government ad interim, for in the year 1494 a wholly English administration was appointed. Sir Edward Poynings, with a picked force of one thousand men, was appointed Lord Deputy. The Bishop of Bangor was appointed Chancellor. Sir Hugh Conway, an Englishman, was to be Treasurer, and these officials were accompanied by an entirely new bench of judges, all English, whom they were instructed to install immediately on their arrival. Kildare had resisted the first changes with vigour, and a bloody feud had taken place between his retainers and those of Sir James of Ormond, on the green of Oxmantown, now Smithfield in Dublin. On the arrival of Poynings, however, he submitted with the best possible grace, and accompanied that deputy to Drogheda, where he had summoned a parliament to meet him. From Drogheda they made an incursion into O'Hanlon's country, Orier in Ormagh. On returning from Drogheda, Poynings, on a real or pretended discovery of a secret understanding between O'Hanlon and Kildare, arrested the latter in Dublin, and at once placed him on board a bark kept waiting for that purpose, and dispatched him to England. On reaching London he was imprisoned in the Tower for two years, during which time his party in Ireland were left headless and dispirited. The government of Sir Edward Poynings, which lasted from 1494 till Kildare's restoration in August 1496, 
is most memorable for the character of its legislation. He assembled a parliament at Drogheda, in November 1495, at which were passed the statutes so celebrated in our parliamentary history as the Tenth Henry the Seventh. These statutes were the first enacted in Ireland in which the English language was employed. They confirmed the provisions of the Statute of Kilkenny, except that prohibiting the use of the Irish language, which had now become so deeply rooted, even within the pale, as to make its immediate abolition impracticable. The hospitable law passed in the time of Richard, Duke of York, against the arrest of refugees by virtue of writs issued in England, was repealed. The English acts against provisors to Rome, ecclesiastics who applied for or accepted preferment directly from Rome, were adopted. It was also enacted that all offices should be held at the king's pleasure, that the lords of Parliament should appear in their robes as the lords did in England, that no one should presume to make peace or war except with license of the governor, that no great guns should be kept in the fortresses except by similar license, and that men of English birth only should be appointed constables of the castles of Dublin, Trim, Lexlip, Athlone, Wicklow, Greencastle, Carlingford, and Carrickfergus. But the most important measure of all was one which provided that thereafter no legislation whatever should be proceeded with in Ireland, unless the bills to be proposed were first submitted to the King and Council in England, and were returned, certified under the great seal of the realm. This is what is usually and specially called in our parliamentary history Poynings Act, and next to the Statute of Kilkenny it may be considered the most important enactment ever passed at any Parliament of the English settlers. The liberation of the Earl of Kildare from the Tower, and his restoration as deputy, seems to have been hastened by the movements of Peck and Warbeck, and by the visit of Hugh Roe O'Donnell to James the Fourth, King of Scotland. O'Donnell had arrived at Ayr in the month of August, 1495, a few weeks after Warbeck had reached that court. He was received with great splendour and cordiality by the accomplished prince, then lately come of age, and filled with projects natural to his youth and temperament. With O'Donnell, according to the four masters, he formed a league, by which they bound themselves mutually to assist each other in all their exigencies. The knowledge of this alliance, and of Warbeck's favour at the Scottish court, no doubt decided Henry to avail himself, if possible, of the assistance of his most powerful Irish subject. There was, moreover, another influence at work. The first countess had died soon after her husband's arrest, and he now married, in England, Elizabeth St. John, cousin to the king. Fortified in his allegiance and court favour by this alliance, he returned in triumph to Dublin, where he was welcomed with enthusiasm. In his subsequent conduct as Lord Deputy, an office which he continued to hold till his death in 1513, this powerful nobleman seems to have steadily upheld the English interest, which was now in harmony with his own. Having driven off Warbeck in his last visit to Ireland, 1497, he received extensive estates in England, as a reward for his zeal, and after the victory of Nocto, 1505, he was installed by proxy at Windsor as Knight of the Garter. This long-continued reign, for such in truth it may be called, left him without a rival in his latter years. He marched to whatever end of the island he would, pulling down and setting up chiefs and castles. His garrisons were to be found from Belfast to Cork, and along the valley of the Shannon, from the Athleague to Limerick. The last event of national importance connected with the name of Garrett Moore arose out of the Battle of Nocto, Battle Axe Hill, fought within seven or eight miles of Galway Town, on the 19th of August, 1504. 
Few of the cardinal facts in our history have been more entirely misapprehended and misrepresented than this. It is usually described as a pitched battle between English and Irish, the turning point in the war of races, and the second foundation of English power. The simple circumstances are these. Ulrich III, Lord of Clanricarde, had married and misused the Lady Eustatia Fitzgerald, who seems to have fled to her father, leaving her children behind. This led to an embittered family dispute, which was expanded into a public quarrel by the complaint of William O'Kelly, whose castles of Garbally, Monavay, and Gallag Burke had seized and demolished. In reinstating O'Kelly, Kildare found the opportunity which he sought to punish his son-in-law, and both parties prepared for a trial of strength. It so happened that Clan Ricard's alliances on that day were chiefly with O'Brien and the Southern Irish, while Kildare's were with those of Ulster. From these causes, what was at first a family quarrel, and at most a local feud, swelled into the dimensions of a national contest between North and South, Leith Magda and Leith Khan. Under these terms, the native annalists accurately described the belligerence on either side. With Kildare were the lords of Tyrconnell, Sligel, Moylurg, Brefni, Oriel, and Orior, O'Farrell, Bishop of Ardagh, the Tanist of Tyrowen, the heir of Ivag, O'Kelly of Hymani, MacWilliam of Mayo, the barons of Slane, Delvin, Howth, Dunsany, Gormanstown, Trimblestown, and John Blake, mayor of Dublin, with the city militia. With Clan Ricard were Turlogh O'Brien, son of the Lord of Thomond, McNamara of Clare, O'Carroll of Eli, O'Brien of Ara, and O'Kennedy of Ormond. The battle was obstinate and bloody. Artillery and musketry, first introduced from Germany some twenty years before, 1487, were freely used, and the ploughshare of the peasant has often turned up bullets, large and small, upon the hillside where the battle was fought. The most credible account sets down the number of the slain at two thousand men, the most exaggerated nine thousand. The victory was with Kildare, who, after encamping on the field for twenty-four hours, by the advice of O'Donnell, marched next day to Galway, where he found the children of Clan Ricard, whom he restored to their injured mother. Athen reopened its gates to receive the conquerors, and after celebrating their victory in the stronghold of the vanquished, the Ulster chiefs returned to the north, and Kildare to Dublin. Less known is the Battle of Monabrere, which may be considered the offset of Nocto. It was fought in 1510, the first year of Henry VIII, who had just confirmed Lord Kildare in the government. The younger O'Donnell joined him in Munster, and after taking the castles of Cantark, Palace, and Castlemaine, they marched to Limerick, where the Earl of Desmond, the McCarthys of both branches, and the Irish of Meath and Leinster, in alliance with Kildare, joined them with their forces. The old allies, Turlogh O'Brien, Clan Ricard, and the McNamaras, attacked them at the bridge of Portrush, near Castle Connell, and drove them through Monabrere, the Friars' Bog, with the loss of the barons Barnwell and Kent, and many of their forces. The survivors were fain to take refuge within the walls of Limerick. Three years later, Earl Gerald sent out to besiege Leap Castle, in O'More's country, but it happened that as he was watering his horse in the little river Greece at Kilkia, he was shot by one of the O'Moores. He was immediately carried to Athney, where shortly afterwards he expired. If we accept the first Hugh de Lacy and the Red Earl of Ulster, the Normans in Ireland had not produced a more illustrious man than Gerald, eighth Earl of Kildare. He was, says Stainhurst, of tall stature and goodly presence, very liberal and merciful, of strict piety, mild in his government, passionate but easily appeased. 
and our justice-loving four masters have described him as a knight in valour, and princely and religious in his words and judgment. End of chapter 8. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.